0: Welcome to Startup Europe, the Sifted podcast. I'm Eleanor, Sifted's deputy editor, and this week we are back with a longer form interview, and I'm pleased to say that I'm joined in the studio by Eileen Burbidge. Eileen is one of the European tech scene's most recognizable operators and investors. In 2004, Eileen moved over to London from Silicon Valley to start a new job as director of product at the then one year old startup Skype, which we all know now. Um, she then went on to work at Yahoo's European division before co founding early stage investment firm Passion Capital in 2011. Eileen, welcome to the pod. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so I love that I can have an American on the pod. You're <laughs> originally from Chicago. That's right. What? How did you go from Chicago to Silicon Valley to London? Very, very haphazard.
1: I mean, I'd never have a plan in mind, probably, and I think I'm just very, very lucky. So. After university, because I went to university in the Midwest as well, went to Illinois. I then went to Texas first, and then ended up in California working for a telecoms company. And then it was once I was in the Bay Area, I sort of found this tech sector, and I knew that Apple was there, Intel was there back in the day. This is how old I am. Silicon Graphics, you know, was big, and I really fell in love with the tech sector and decided to join Apple and got lucky enough to get a job at Apple in. Uh, 1995. So yeah, so then I was in the valley for 10 years, which is much of the dot com boom. More, I think, instructive and sort of life lessons were the two or three years of the bust that I was there for, um, to witness as well. And then, like you said, in 2004, I thought, you know what? After being at Apple, after being at Sun Microsystems, after working at an incubator, after working at a company that went public in 1999, I actually thought I was going to stay in Silicon Valley forever, but thought that it would help my, you know, experiences as a contributor to just have a slightly more global outlook and get international experience for the CV. And so thought London, it was either going to be London or Amsterdam, just based on language. Um, and thought a year or two and that I'd be back. And here I am now 20 years on with an additional passport four kids, a stepdaughter, so a family of five children. And yeah, I've just been incredibly lucky to just have different opportunities and different chances to try things.
0: Yeah, totally. When you got here, what was it like being an American, A, an American, and also one of the few women in tech at the time? It's funny to think back on, first of all, because it's such a
1: long time ago. So many of your listeners will be like, why are we talking about 20 years ago? But it was um, so different to what it is now. And You know, I still think there's a huge distinction between the vibe and culture of Silicon Valley than there is here, even, you know, in and around Old Street where we are right now, which is if you go into any Starbucks or cafe in Silicon Valley, you can be certain that 99% of the people there work at a tech company. And if you're going to be speaking about something, you're going to do it in hushed tones because everyone's going to know somebody. And there's very few degrees of separation. Whereas here in London, You know, fortunately, you get in a cab, you queue up in a Starbucks, and you can assume most people aren't in tech. And um, 20 years ago, I, I remember, you know, really, really chatty, friendly black cab drivers sort of being like, oh, so what do you do for work, love? You know, I started to learn saying tech meant absolutely nothing at all, just didn't work. And I started to adapt and say, okay, I work in IT. And they understood that. So that's where we were in 2004. There wasn't really a tech sector. I remember when we first started to hire additional product people for Skype, the job title software development manager or software product manager did not exist with recruiters and headhunters here. And so it was very different, a lot of fun, because I really liked going from the Silicon Valley, sort of very insular mindset, to one of which is there's a whole lot more going on in the world. And what we do should be enabling and should improve outcomes, but it isn't the end all be all. And I loved it. But it was certainly, I guess I could say I I was self conscious about being from the States, I do think I benefited from it, though, I think I probably got more credit, Then I was worth in that because I'd come from Silicon Valley, people thought, oh, you've got that DNA or that mindset or even witnessed, you know, what works and doesn't work or whatever you've seen in the last 10 years. That's really valuable to us. And so I think I could have had any role and they sort of wanted to transplant that over and which is great. And I do recognize now that sometimes seeing what doesn't work. For whatever reason it might be, is as valuable as being part of a journey that's hugely successful as well. So I do think the combination of those things does make a big difference. But I, I probably got more credit than, than was really, really deserved at the time. Okay.
0: You took with it, you took <laughs> it and you ran with it. So that's that's totally great. I also read there was an interview, you, an interview with you from a couple of years ago where you were talking about going to these tech conferences where there were models in their underwear and this stuff made you uncomfortable, and you were like, I'm not going to that. Tell me a little bit more about this. Like, it sounds like kind of a Wild West vibe. In So that wasn't that long ago.
1: That was 2015. Oh and that conference still takes place. But I don't think that practice takes place anymore. Um, I'm no longer invited to that conference. But anyway, um, yeah, I think there was a very different vibe, not just because the tech ecosystem itself was relatively nascent, but I just think there's been there have been so many shifts now even in the recent you know the last what 7 8 years that have really helped us all and helped the sector move along considerably so when i think about it i think the me too sort of movement or reckoning or at least the the time when you know women felt that it was there was a safe place or at least infrastructure to support them if they were to call out bad behavior i think has obviously forced Lots of people, lots of organizations and sort of workplace dynamics to recognize that for too long there was, you know, an imbalance and there was, um, you know, mistreatment and bad behavior. Um, And I think even though when I first got here 20 years ago, you could have talked about diversity and gender diversity and the like and ethnic diversity. You would have had 20 years ago, somebody would have rolled their eyes or just been like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, as if it was an afterthought or we'd get there if and when we'd have the luxury of doing that versus it being part of business success or or business factors. And there's actually a a great photograph, which I love because I'm proud of that early Skype team, of when we had a board meeting in Tallinn, And I didn't even really clock it for years and years until after somebody posted it on Facebook. I think it was Steve Jurvetson and other people started tagging names in it. And actually my, my former sister-in-law, my ex-husband's sister saw it on Facebook many years on and recognized that I was the only woman in that room in that photograph. And I hadn't even clocked it because I was just so used to it. Um, so we would have talked about diversity then, I think. I don't know that we would have done anything about it, but certainly 2016, 2017, me too, forced that to be part of the conversation for good. And then I think what's just as impactful even though it's on a different lens or different axis is in 2020, what happened in America with George Floyd. And that forced a conversation or at least discussion about race and ethnicity and inclusion on an entirely different sphere, which I think was fantastic. I think that also then, probably accelerated what would have naturally happened anyway but conversations about other ethnic diversity so you know uh, we then roll into COVID and we have the backlash from the pandemic and you've seen you know anti sort of East Asian sentiment as well and hate crime and so there have been so many things that have happened you know who would have predicted a pandemic who could have predicted this wave of me too but one right after another which means where we sit today in 2023 is such a better place where these conversations happen, whether we're still waiting for the, you know, right outcomes or the right balance. Um, but we can at least have these conversations and we can do the work and it's no longer just an afterthought or an yeah, oh yeah, but you know, and it's no longer eye rolling or just seen as a tick box exercise. So comparing where we are now to 2004 is almost impossible, but I don't even have to go that far back. I really think the change we've seen is more recent. It's in the last sort of six, seven years.
0: I've always felt as an American, it gives me a really interesting perspective working in UK tech, because I think some of the a lot of the conversations around diversity in the United States, they don't necessarily apply. But yet, the U.S. is always a little bit ahead in terms of those conversations, and so people in these like industries kind of t- want to take what's happening in the U.S. and be like, okay, we need to like do what the U.S. is doing. But that doesn't necessarily always apply when it comes to diversity. Have you ever felt that? Like, yeah, there is know? a I, – I do think I
1: know what you're you, you're you're saying, and that they're not for some reason, and it it is an interesting like cultural. If we think about the plane of you know U.S. and the U.K., they're somewhat different because. Um, You know, you talk about things like, you know, Asian American, for example, you know, struggles or issues in in the U.S., and that is very U.S. specific and very different from the East Asian or Southeast Asian experience, South Asian experience here in the U.K. Um, And then you talk about, you know, again, what happened after George Floyd. The response to that is also very different in the U.K. and here. And also gender diversity is very different. So when I first got here, I actually thought, you know, British and European Uh, counterparts had gender diversity much better sorted than there and then in the u.s because it felt like there was not quite such a explicit glass ceiling you had people like angela merkel you had you know thatcher before you had very powerful women in certain positions and yet you know very um what's the word i'm trying to think about you know um uh it's not chauvinistic that I'm trying to think about, but that is the other side of the same coin, you know, where men are you know, holding the door open, which in America was actually very annoying. You know, it, it came across as very patronizing in the U.S. And actually, I think most of my colleagues and peers like men stopped doing that even in the U.S. And then here, though, it was very much the thing to do. And yet you knew not to take offense because it wasn't. It wasn't framed in all of the same historical or I don't know the same tone that we had in America. So I I do know what you mean. I don't know how to articulate it, which is really bad for a podcast. But I know what you mean. They're not directly um, correlated uh, or parallel at all.
0: Yeah, it's it's really difficult, but I think there's it's interesting to see tech companies try and like do this stuff, and we can get into that on Fertifa as well because I think there's that also ties into you know how people think about things like you know your reproductive health and all of that stuff. Um, but anyway, next thing I wanted to ask you about was so I wanted to go into a little bit around your time at Passion, and obviously that was like you know VC was not really a thing in in London at the time, um, and you made some incredible bets on companies that have gone on to be so successful and so emblematic of the UK tech scene. How did you spot companies like, you know, go cardless, like Monzo? What was it about those teams when they came in to pitch to you that you were like, yes, this is this is gold dust? Again, I think if there's anything that becomes a consistent theme through our
1: conversation, hopefully it's luck. I'm a big believer in luck, you know, privilege, access. I also believe, what's that saying? You know, sometimes, the luckiest ones that might be the hardest working, or, you know, I, I do think you can help manifest luck or sort of create or help yourself to to be lucky or recognized lucky circumstances. But there's no question at all, though, that we've we've been very lucky and fortunate. And it's been a privilege to work with all the founders we've worked with, not all of whom, you know, end up becoming like a Monzo. And I think, Everything feeds into an experience and a decision about whether or not to invest in a certain company. Everything that's come, you know, before that helps inform that. So they're not isolated things. Um, you know, the examples that you mentioned, for example, go cardless. Uh, if we start there, just because chronologically that was first, you know, it just came about. We had an ethos when we set up passion, which, in the most basic form, and certainly from where I came from, could be as simple as saying we wanted to bring over the American founder-friendly way of investing in startups. And that hadn't existed um, simply because I'm not saying the people that were investing at the time weren't founder-friendly or weren't wanting to be pleasant in that way, but the market didn't necessitate it there weren't enough competitive factors so that you had to lead with being founder friendly because there was such a limited pool of capital or investors and actually passion was the first seed stage specific tech fund in london when we set that up there was only multi-stage funds and some business angel groups that's all that existed in london at the time and then right off the back of it, i mean we were part of a, a group and a cohort of course you had seed camp and you had others set up as well but um when we set up it was about trying to bring bring founder friendly principles and i think again that sort of then just led to or, you know, had consequences such as let's have a co-working space. Let's work alongside some of our teams instead of being based in Mayfair. Let's be based somewhere a little bit further east. Hey, Clarkenwell's, you know, pretty active and it seems like that's where founders want to be and let's get a space that they want to work in. Let's selfishly have other people around the office. That makes it a really dynamic feel to come to every day. So we're not just staring at each other. Um, and as a consequence of that, oh, and there's a team, a British you know, set of founders that went to Y Combinator. They're coming back. They need office space. They can't find an office that's open over the weekend. They want a co-working space. Somebody connects us to them, and I say, "Yeah, sure, come see the space." And that's how GoCardless, you know, gets introduced to us. And we didn't invest that day, but we had them sitting in the office for a few months. We noticed from their KPI graphs and their whiteboards that seems to be going pretty well. And then we asked to invest. And then Go Cardless led to, of course, given the co-founding team of Hiroki, Tom, and Matt, us also then investing in Monzo and Innested. Um, so it's it's like I said, everything before an investment you know factors into making that investment decision. But we were very lucky to get to know those founders. And then, of course, the early employees at all of those companies have been people who, again, we're grateful for, but probably or hopefully heard about how we behaved, how we conducted ourselves, how we negotiated with the founders, uh, maybe what positions we took when there were different sides of a discussion or a debate with other investors. And then that would just lead to more deal flow or opportunities from some of those early employees as well. And um, so we can sort of see where our deal flow comes from, where the investments we may come from. And again, even if it's not going to be early employees, you know, I think about another great business like Butternut Box or yet another one like Marshmallow, not from that same cohort or that group of people, but they would have heard or, you know, through their grapevine that those founders enjoyed working with us multiple times. So there must be something at least worth chatting to us about. And then again, the way we behave with them leads to better and better outcomes, or at least opportunities for investment.
0: I guess you also got to know Tom at Monzo really, really well, because I know you spent some time also just like really intensely working at Monzo about the time when he was making his transition out of the company. Um, And it's like, you know, you put your operator hat back on a little bit to go in and help them, um, which is not something you see VCs do, like really going and and being that hands-on. What was that experience like? Like what was Monzo like at the time? And what was going through your head? What was going through his head? And
1: yeah, it's really interesting. And of course there's been so much said about it. And you know, I love and celebrate and hugely respect Tom for, for being so open about his journey and what he was going through. And so I feel like much of it is his story to tell. But in terms of, you know, how it feels to go in, um, you know, when again I mentioned one of the the ethos points of us setting up passion was to be founder-friendly. Another, I think, big distinction between us and other firms that already existed at the time was that we were former operators and entrepreneurs ourselves and didn't come from asset management, fund management, or investment banking backgrounds. And so we were pitching and saying to founders what we'll bring to the table and our value will be that we are thinking more about you building up this team and this company and this business rather than... IRR or you know I don't know profit margin from month to month or something like that so it would seem that we should be able to sort of be hands-on but we actually spent quite a number of years deprogramming our brains um, and teaching ourselves to be investors which is to be hands-off but still add value and perspective but to let the teams run the businesses we are investing in teams we aren't investing in ideas or propositions that we're going to run, we're investing in teams. So so it's rare to have the opportunity to get involved on an operational basis. But I actually first did it uh, for Tide Banking, which is obviously a fantastic, uh fantastically performing digital challenger for SME banking here in the UK. And in 2018, when it was, you know, a sort of a Mutual agreement with George Bevis, the original founder, as well as the rest of the board, that would be a great time to bring in a scaling CEO, uh, pre series B. You know, that was all agreed. And it's, it's a funny story. I don't know if this has been talked about before, but I had negotiated and worked with obviously George and the rest of the team to bring in a candidate that we were all pretty excited about. And for, different reasons. It didn't work out, but we had already announced it at the company All Hands. We'd already thanked George. We'd said, this is the next stage of the business. And you know he was saying that he was really proud to hand the reins over and the whole thing. And then when it didn't work out, you think, oh, right. Do we tell everybody, just pause that thought and actually George is going to stay in role for another three to four months while you find somebody else? Or do we try and keep the momentum going? Or, you know, and so we decided actually felt regressive to be, to, to say, oh, George is going to stay on since people had gotten over that emotional, you know, oh, it's, there's a new chapter coming. So I went in as interim CEO. It ended up being about four months and brought in Oliver Pearl again with the team and, and with the up group helping us. Um, but that was my probably my first reminder of being operational again. It was about a 50-person team at the time. Um, you know, again, great team at that point. So I didn't have to do too much or, you know, uh, on my own, there was a fantastic team that I was working with. But that was quite intensive for four months. It did take me a while to kind of recover and then adjust. Um, but it's probably why I was in at least an open mindset when in, you know, very early 2020. Tom said you know hand up I don't want to be doing my job in six months time and by the way I did not go in to do his job uh, so it's not analogous to tied in that way but I initially went in and said understood and again with the board and the chair we talked about the best way to support Tom through a succession uh, and a transition and it felt like it would be useful if I could spend a couple of days a week just I've got his back I can maybe deal with you know some of the sort of people shit, or some of the admin that, you know, he didn't want to deal with. And so let him kind of focus on product and the, the parts that obviously he flexes on. And the chair was also spending more time than to speak with the regulator. And and this was all, you know, discussed and agreed, the best way to support the executive team. What none of us expected, of course, at that time, and, and really what led to, I think, my longer tenure there, is that we had then the pandemic come I think it was about three or four weeks after I started doing what was going to be a couple of days a week. Um, and with the pandemic, and it's been publicly reported since, you know, Monzo obviously drastically cut costs at that point, closed the Las Vegas service center, uh, had to do redundancies, unfortunately, salary sacrifices, and kind of reshaped the cost basis of the business in order to try and, um, you know, extend runway and become more efficient. And then we also, you know, did bring in, uh, Tom had already hired a U.S. CEO, but we also uh, ran a process with him and other candidates about identifying who the best uh, group CEO would be, and that was TS. And then Tom had also already started, you know, interviewing for COOs. And so ended up being, yeah, nine to ten months that, um, I stayed in in a, in a kind of a, a loose kind of people role. And we brought in, you know, TS as CEO, Sujata as COO, new chief risk officer, new CFO, new chief product officer, new general counsel. Um, and pretty much, yeah, that whole C suite, which again was a whole team effort. But, um, hopefully I was able to provide not necessarily consistency, but some kind of continuity, at least for the executive team. Hopefully, some, um, mental sort of mind space for Tom as you know just to assure him yeah we're going to work on a succession plan and and show that but also yeah, to give some I think uh, again support to the people team as well that was actually implementing quite a lot of changes for the company through a pandemic.
0: Totally how did you like divide your mind space in that you know Like you want to be like super in there and you want to be like there for Tom, for the team, whenever they need to pick up the phone and, you know, have that reassurance. But then you also need to like have your other responsibilities in your life. Like, how did you balance all of this stuff?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think it's interesting thinking about it now. You you know, what I just mentioned or explained is that a lot of it came about because of the pandemic, but then because of the pandemic and because we're in lockdown, everyone's working remotely. So I think that actually made a huge difference. I remember when I did it at Tide, what, what helped quite a bit at Tide was Tide and Passion were in the same office building, but different floors. So I could go up and downstairs, which was handy for the four months I did that. And also a good workout. (laughs) Not bad at all. Monzo was all, you know, it'd be Teams calls or, or sorry, Google Meet, um, Google Meet calls. And so that would just be, that's how I'd sort of shift between the two. But, you know, it was also, I had the support, of course, of my passion partners, you know, recognizing the importance and let we can be really blunt about it, you know, the, the value that that represents to Passion as a fund and a fund manager is is obviously extraordinary. So there probably wasn't a question that this is a priority. I had always had the pleasure of being on the board. And so if there was something we could do to help, there was no question that I would be doing that. I mean, we didn't know that it would last as long as it did, but I did have the support of my partners at Passion. I'm sure there are some of our other company portfolio company founders who were like, OK, yeah, you were a little bit hard to get a hold of or you took a couple of days longer to get back to us or could you get an EA so that we can book in with you or whatever it is and, you know, maybe more difficult. But um, hopefully I didn't uh, drop too many balls. Um, And yeah, I think the I think more than 50% of my time clearly was with Monzo. It was a it was an everyday role uh, for a good nine months without question.
0: Wow. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Was there any like specific experiences from that time or like, you know, meetings you had or that sort of stuff where you were just like, wow, this company, this company is going to get through it, but like. Oh, I always thought the company would get through it. And I think, I mean,
1: like Tide, when we, when I got involved, it was very obvious to us as investor shareholders that there was massive value creation here. So I don't mean to sound too capitalistic about it, but you know, it was the right thing to do. What I, the reason I want to establish that is because I don't want to ignore that, but what makes Monzo very special and um, I mean, I think, you know, people who have, I guess, dipped in and out of my social media over years will know that Monzo has always had a special place, even before it, you know, speech marks took off, because of its founding principles, its ambition, and how much we believed in that. Um, and, you know, we, it's public record, are significant shareholders, we still own 20% of that bank. Which is extraordinary, and again, we're really lucky. But the only reason we have that position is because nobody else would co-invest with us for the first three rounds. So we had, you know, we had strong, strong conviction, but also backed that up, you know, time and time again. And so this was a very special company to us from that point of view, but also because we genuinely believe in the mission, and I have said countless times in, you know, countless moments at all hands from when that team was, you know the five founders to 11 people to 20 to 50 to 500 to, you know, a couple thousand, I've always said the same thing. I think that there is no secret sauce to saying that one wants to build a digital challenger bank. And we've seen plenty come and go now as well. And there are lots in the market uh, still thriving. But what's special about that team is, you know, they were a group of people throughout the years who believed in doing things, not just, you know, freezing your card when you lose your debit card, which now every single UK bank does, but also being the first to offer, you know, people without a fixed address, a bank account, you know, the first to put on gambling block, the first to think about what really is possible if we're thinking about people's relationship with money, not how do we become a digital challenger bank? And that's just been, you know, that's credit to Tom and all the co-founders from day one, we believed in that. And so to your question in 2020, there was no doubt in my mind. I mean, there would be concern, (laughs) like, you know, it's a, it's an actual, it's a non-zero possibility that maybe this doesn't go well, but there's no doubt in my mind that all the ingredients of a, you know, a genuinely successful, scalable, sustainable business existed in Monzo. And by that time, I should probably remember, but it must have had at least 3 million, if not 4 million, you know, customers at that point, which makes it probably a top 15 UK bank. And so there's nothing is too big to fail, but it felt like we have, you know, a customer base, an asset base, IP, a tech stack that's developed solely in-house, that means even in you know the worst case we have asset value here that is worth you know really continuing to invest in and so there isn't a specific meeting that i can think of there are lots of moments though that that i hope i won't forget and i should probably write some of them down you know some of the low lights were you know i'll never forget the call um because i i i did that call with a couple of colleagues where we had to communicate to the las vegas service team that we were going to close that down. And I hope that people on that call could see how genuinely, you know, disheartened we were to have to deliver that news, not because we were worried about the business, but because we cared about them as colleagues and humans. And what I love about that call was there were some tears, there were clearly people upset and, you know, it's a Google meet and there's chat at the same time but the number of people who said if you're going to hire again in the US please let me know how do I get on a list if you're going to reopen it in the future because everyone understood there's the pandemic and, and you know or what if I were to move to London or the UK could I get an, a, you know a job in Cardiff or that was you know really just heartwarming and and I think validates what I'm saying about how special that company is um I also remember speaking to investors uh, in the days before announcing the appointment of TS as CEO, um, and how Tom would be transitioning. And I remember some investors saying, you know, you, you can't, you can't let this happen. You know, and, and obviously, I had been close to the team, and I'd been involved in the process. And so there was trust there. But their point was, we invested because we believe in Tom, he had pitched newer investors or other investors, you know, have bought into Tom. It was sort of the, the founder had kind of become the investment thesis and the concern was we need him to still have this title CEO. Genuinely they thought they were being constructive, but I had, you know, people saying to me, I don't care what he's doing, let him go on holiday, let him go on a sabbatical, but he's still gotta have that title CEO. Let's what about co-CEO? What about if T S takes this title and just didn't want to let that go and i remember uh, it wasn't even a negotiation it was just i had to hear that out but there was no other option and it was about tom's health at that point and well being like there was no you know and so for me it was tom is going to step away what is the best way that we can manage that for him or support him doing that whilst obviously not making the company vulnerable we believe we have a great successor here a great candidate who's obviously taking the business even further. But, you know, making sure that people were going to be, um, well, they weren't comfortable, but that they, you know, were going to live with that. I think I'll, I won't forget those sort of, I think it was 24, 36 hours beforehand that I was doing calls. Um, yeah, there are lots of different moments about different people and individuals. It was, it was, um, it is a pleasure to have been part of that and a privilege to have been part of it. And it's it was great to to be, um, part of it in a more hands-on way as well. I'm sure my family will tell you though that I was a bit less present, I guess, for certainly a few months and it took me a while I think to recover from it as well. I burnt out a bit. So after I sort of stepped away in August of that year, or maybe it was September, I remember being a little bit like, okay, I'm just a bit fried now that I realized I don't have to do all these calls, but yeah, it was um it was it was amazing to be part of.
0: And obviously now you're kind of in a similar situation, right? Um, You know, you're working out for Tifa, right? Helping leading the team there, but also you've got responsibilities at at Passion. And I know, you know, one innovative thing that you've done with Passion in the last fund was you also did crowdfunding, right? And so you now have a bunch of individuals who also have stakes in the fund. Like, what would you say to those people when you're like, look, I've got these two hats on again. I'm doing my operator thing. I'm doing my investor thing. Yeah. Hopefully, well, that's a good question. So what I'd say to them is hopefully,
1: given I've done it before, so it is possible um, that I would, you know, never let them down. And I'm still trying to do right by them. Also looking after the passion, you know, value drivers and the portfolio companies as much as I can. But hopefully it's also somewhat reassuring that for Tifa, it is a passion uh, fund three company. So that's how it started. And it's interesting because there's a question you asked earlier about, you know, doing the dual hat of Monzo and Passion at that time in 2020. So we actually invested in Fratifa in October 2020. So it was also during lockdown, it was during the pandemic. Um, So we were still making new investments. Uh, We had just started, actually, because we closed the fund first in August 2019, but second closing in August 2020. And we came across the investment in Fratifa, made that investment, really believed in the vision, the purpose, and the market that Fratifa was going after, Um, that's a whole nother podcast probably, but I have talked about why, you know, my personal journey really has me, especially in recent years, gravitating towards supporting reproductive health and wanting to invest in areas where I think they have been historically under-invested um, to really great damage, unfortunately. So it's something I'd been keeping an eye out for. We had surveyed the market. We had talked to most you know, startups that are still around now, but certainly that were around in 2020. We came across Fatifa and liked the proposition. I'm also a personal angel investor in US-based Maven Clinic. Love Kate Ryder. She had been based in London before she went to New York to uh, build that up and have seen what she has done, kind body have done in the US for this category. And in my research, realized that eight times as much money is spent today across Europe in assisted reproductive technology than in the US. And yet there are three unicorns in the US in this category, and there isn't a category leader yet in Europe. And so as an investor, I sort of think, this seems to be a very big market to me. This seems to be something that makes a lot of sense. I think it's because I was born and raised in America that I am used to, you know, non-public funded health care or private pay healthcare. But I'm also right now hugely sensitive to the rollback of reproductive health care rights in America and in certain states. And so I'm very concerned about that and sort of future access to I've had twenty years benefiting from the NHS here, but I think culturally we've got we've developed a sort of false sense of comfort that the NHS or public health care across Europe will look after us when actually it hasn't ever always been, you know, completely inclusive. It's always had to have some kind of cost constraints or budget constraints, or so restrictions. So you know you might have qualified for three rounds of IVF at the NHS if you were of a certain age group, if you were under a certain BMI, if you didn't have children from a previous relationship, if you were married, um, so if you weren't in a same-sex relationship, you know, those kinds of things. And so historically, that's not been the case anyway. But coming off of the pandemic, and again, we made this investment during the pandemic, it was clear that the NHS was on its knees. There were record wait times. Unfortunately, those haven't really gone away. And so there's an obvious case in my mind that we will need to have different types of privately funded healthcare throughout the UK and Europe as as we go through the years. Um, that's not where we started with Fortifa, but we started more on the companies finally recognizing a duty to employee wellbeing during the pandemic. We no longer pretend we don't have children or families or dogs or pets because everyone's seeing it and everyone's background on, on Zoom calls. And so we have to look after wellbeing and actually these reproductive health matters Are hugely distracting and debilitating for productivity. So if employers really want to look after people, they need to start covering these topics which have never been covered under private medical insurance and which we weren't getting enough of through, you know, the public healthcare system. So when Fertifa came along, it seemed an obvious investment thesis for a pre-seed deal. And when the team sort of said, you know, there was a a bit of a shuffle needed or execution was going well and traction was going well and inbound demand was going really well but you know we might need a slight sort of rejig of the leadership team i went in january 2022 thinking okay no problem i've done the tide thing i've done the monzo thing the company's seven people that's the size of my dinner table so i can go in on interim but it'll take me three months I'll hire somebody to be this CEO like I did at Tide because I'll just look for somebody who wants to be a startup founder but hasn't thought of the right idea yet. And that was the original idea uh, a year and a half ago. Um, And just the team hasn't been able to get rid of me because I then just fell even more in love with the proposition. I saw how much demand there was. I felt it was a largely executional play, but should be delivered by someone who really, really believes in the mission and is really driven by the mission, which which I really am. Um, and would obviously be, you know, if somebody was to say there's a better person to run this business than you, I, you know, I've had that conversation the other way. So I'm ready for that. But for the moment, I feel like, you know, running this, building this up and proving out the thesis that I said to you a few minutes ago, which is, There should be a category leader here in Europe. We shouldn't just wait for Maven or Kindbody or other great U.S. businesses. They're fantastic. But we shouldn't just wait for them to come to service us here in the U.K. and Europe. We should build our own. And we have the ability and the capability and the talent to do that. So that's what I'm really excited about doing now.
0: And there have been Fertifa babies.
1: Yeah, there have been lots of Fertifa babies. We had a new Fertifa baby just born three weeks ago.
0: Crazy. Yeah. Have we, you met any of the Fertifa babies? I like, haven't
1: met any of the Fertifa babies. We do get their photographs. And I have to tell you, you know, you, there's no team call, like a team call when you get to share the photo of a Fertifa baby. Um, and it just makes you realize that the work you're doing to support people through these journeys, you know, people have had three and a half year fertility challenges. Some people have had 11 year challenges. I mean, what people go through to uh, realize their dream of becoming parents which should be everybody's rights and everybody's option. And they may just need a helping hand. They may just need someone who's got their back. They may just need someone to explain why this clinic, not that clinic. But to support them however we can is again a huge gift. It's fantastic. And we started infertility, hence the company name for TIFA, but we now support all of reproductive hormonal and sexual health. So it's you know, it's not just for women. Um, when we're talking about family forming, becoming parents, every LGBT individual needs support to become a parent. And so we're also talking about adoption. We're also talking about surrogacy, but we're also talking about one in eight men in the UK are going to be diagnosed with prostate cancer. Uh, 25% of working age men are going to actually die before the age of retirement because of a health related issue. We don't think men are talking or thinking about their well-being and their health as much as, or even enough like women are in the workplace and we know that the women aren't being serviced enough. So this is about men, women, everyone. It's not about people just wanting to start families or reproducing. It's about anyone who has a reproductive health system. So it's, you know, STIs, it's erectile dysfunction. It's a vasectomy. Maybe it's a reverse vasectomy. It is about egg freezing, sperm freezing. Uh, it is about fertility, but it's also about menopause. Um, 13 million women today in the UK are going through paramenopause or menopause and, of them are thinking about leaving work because of their symptoms. So this is becoming commercially relevant for any business that's thinking about retaining its best talent or attracting great talent as well.
0: But I guess there's also the argument that I hear from some of my girlfriends, because I'm at the age where people are either thinking about freezing their eggs or they're having their first children of, oh, great that my company is giving me this benefit, but don't they have kind of a selfish motivation in mind, which is to have me work a couple more years before I have a child by allowing me to put off, you know, having children. Yeah, I know that's been an objection. I actually haven't heard that much
1: recently. But absolutely, when, you know, the tech companies in Silicon Valley introduced this I think it's close to 10 years ago now. So you had Google, Yahoo, you know, Apple, Facebook at the time, Meta. When they first introduced it, there was that backlash and that sentiment that companies must be doing this so that people will just stay working longer and put off having children. When actually now we've got enough data to show that you know, respondents and people who tell us why they freeze their eggs. It's not because they want to focus on their careers. It's not because they want to put it off. It's because they haven't met their life partner yet. And they don't want to be necessarily forced into making a decision um, which affects their personal life. And so companies who are offering the benefit, maybe some will be doing it selfishly, but I don't actually think so. I think they simply want to help alleviate the stresses and the concerns and the anxiety that people might be having about whether or not it might be too late, whether or not they are looking after their optionality, whether or not they're taking these things into consideration, just giving them that option. Um, again, most companies that have a fertility benefit that'll cover egg freezing or sperm freezing will also cover IVF. And so it is about helping people no matter where they are in their journey. And of course, we would certainly suggest from the Fertifa point of view, you should also be covering menopause, all of women's reproductive health and all of men's reproductive health as well. So I don't think I know any company that only has an allowance, say, for egg freezing, for example, because then maybe I could see that argument or that concern, but it's typically just one piece of reproductive health, well-being, and support.
0: Completely. Um, and what does the future then of reproductive health look like? You know, I thought it was really interesting you were talking about, you know, the NHS being on its knees and a shift towards maybe a more US style healthcare system in Europe and the UK where more stuff is being more services are being provided by the private sector. Right. Um, and this, I guess, depends on people being employed by a company that is able to provide them these services. So what does that like holistically? What is that kind of healthcare like picture look like for someone in 10 years.
1: Yeah, there's a few things and I'm sorry, I think I'm rambling too much for this, for all of this to be on the podcast, right. <laughs> but there's a few things I'd say to that. I think the first thing is another part of the Fertifa mission is not just, you know, helping people to have babies or to feel really gratified about, you know, helping them with their biggest life journeys. I actually um, look forward to when we get to a point where the business is sustainable enough where we can, through our corporate clients, um, you know, the Metas, the bank Capitals, uh, where because of what they're paying us commercially to support their employees, we can maybe subsidize, underwrite and offer support at a different cost structure, maybe to people who are teachers, people who work in the public sector, for maybe people who don't have access to those corporations, but they should have a different, you know, price pricing structure. That is absolutely part of the mission. And for Tifa is about increasing access um, and support for everybody. And we say now, irrespective of, you know, demographic, but I also genuinely mean socioeconomic class and also where you work or what type of workplace you have. Some of the partnerships we're most proudest of or the clients that we're proudest of include Lululemon because they offer for Tifa across all of their employees in Europe. But it's not just those at the head office. It's also those who work in the stores in the retail stores and. That's what we love is the equity and the availability of our resources and our support to everyone. Um So that's the first piece. The second piece, though, because I'm kind of preempting where you're going and I kind of feel the same. We are, I think, moving towards a place in the UK and Europe where there will be more private funded healthcare. full stop. What I don't know is what that balance will be between employer and self-pay um, or even some other form. But now I'm going to tie some things together from what we've seen in fintech or language that we'd use in fintech to what I'm doing today in Fratifa. I've only come up with this hypothesis now since I've been in this role. But the more I sit in this role, the more we hear from clients, the more we hear from prospects, the more we see of the private medical insurance providers, and then also patients, of course, is that while you've got really big players like Aviva, Axa, Vitality and Bupa, I think that in eight to 10 years... Maybe they are still as big and formidable as they are now, but I believe there's an opportunity for a challenger. Just like in banking where we thought, okay, it's not like Barclays and NatWest are going to go away, but because we thought there could have been an Alibaba or an Amazon or an Apple that's challenging banking, there should also be that opportunity for someone like a Monzo in the private medical insurance space, or let's just call it, you know, privately funded healthcare space. I don't think it's going to be the insurance model necessarily, but I don't think it'll just be a Viva, X of Vitality and Bupa. And I would love to see what Fertifa can become in terms of providing people with personalized healthcare or personal healthcare, which stems from reproductive healthcare and all the way on. I mean, we get asked today by clients who are using our services for reproductive healthcare. Can you also support neurodiversity? I mean, that. So it's not even tangentially related to reproductive health system, right? And then we get asked for other things like financing. We get asked for other topics. And I realize it's because they don't wanna go to Aviva, hexa Vitality and Bupa to ask for something else. They don't wanna pay them for something else. They know their employees don't enjoy going through a claims process. And yet they're getting specialized, you know, empathetic, compassionate and high quality support and healthcare from us on certain topics. So then they just ask if we can add to that. And over time I can't wait to keep adding to our suite of services. And so if I kind of think about where that vector goes, I would like to think that in eight and ten years' time, we are a new model of privately funded healthcare for people that's different from private medical insurance and an option to people outside of public healthcare systems too.
0: Super interesting. Well, I can't wait to like get you on the podcast and that time. (laughs) See how that goes, right? See how that goes. I wanted to just change tact a little bit for a minute and ask about the UK and the UK tech scene. I think feel like there's been like a little hand wringing recently with all of the tech nation drama and SVB drama of, you know, is the UK really the, the, the tech hub of Europe? If you were back in 2004 when you came over here, would you choose the UK again or would you go to Amsterdam this time? I think I would probably still choose the UK, but that's probably not fair
1: because I've never spent that much time in Amsterdam. I've visited, but I'm now, you know, so in love with the UK. I'm a British citizen. You know, my children are here. So I I still think the UK is a fantastic place to be. I think that Brexit has not helped and I think even if, you know, one wanted to argue like the specific points and consequences of Brexit, whether it was digital single market, whether it was visas, whether it was um, export import duties or whatever it was. I think even the narrative and the dialogue around Brexit was unhelpful because it felt for a time to be unwelcoming, not open for immigration and very insular and just wanting to be quite isolated, right? So that wasn't helpful, because there's a vibe and a tone that was very different to the the years leading up to it. So I think we're still suffering from that a little bit. And then of course, there are then the real world consequences and practicalities uh, that I listed, and that doesn't help either. But I do believe we've got such a concentration and density now of talent, uh, which we're lucky to have that we're able to keep you know, thriving as a tech sector, I hope it'll continue to improve. Um, but I don't think it's going to go away. Um, And so I think that when we talk about the tech sector, or when say the government wants to say it's still the tech hub of Europe, obviously, it's looking to increase productivity figures, it's wanting to see employment levels, it's wanting to attract FDI for indirect investment and all of those things. None of that should really matter for an entrepreneur who's thinking about starting their company and where to do that. And that should just be, you know, where it depends on where their market is and depends on where they think they can get their talent from. And post-COVID, you know, I think there have been very lots of um, successes now where you don't have to have everyone in the same place. And so you may not have to choose. Is it going to be London or Amsterdam or somewhere else? And so, again, I think we'll benefit, though, from the density of the talent, of the experiences, of the track record, and all the successes that we've had.
0: I want to ask you a little bit of a different question, kind of to end things. It says on your Twitter that you're a recovering work and techaholic. Tell me more about this. I should probably change that
1: because <laughs> I thought I was recovering when I when I sort of. Uh, so I got on Twitter. I think it was in 2007. I was a little bit late to it. Um, so at that time, I think I was I was making the transition to being an investor. I definitely think I was a bit of a workaholic when I was in California. Certainly when we were at Skype, I remember pulling an average of one to two all-nighters a week. Um, and so I think I thought in 2007 I was going to be sort of stepping back a little bit or getting a bit more uh, time for other things by becoming an investor. Maybe it's time to change that or I've given up on the recovery point because I think I'm probably working as much as ever, but I am enjoying it. And I do think I'm lucky to be in this position.
0: So that begs a question. Are you an investor or are you an operator? I think
1: both. Okay. And I think each makes me better at the other. So I think definitely both.
0: Love that. Thank you, Eileen. Thank you. That's so good. Really good, yeah.
1: Was it good? I, yeah. But i rambled for lots of no, long times without breaks. Is it? Well, it was fine. I'm sorry. I, it no, no, no. It's answer. really Your questions were really good because your questions are all like, Okay, this is not a very simple answer. <laughs> no, 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 yeah, yeah. The landscape of public yeah. healthcare in the
0: UK is a tough one. Where to do I start? Yeah, 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 yeah. And and
1: I should have probably said, but maybe it doesn't matter. I mean, American healthcare is so messed up, it's not even funny. It's horrific. Yeah, right? I don't want
0: to go back so to So exactly.
1: I don't want to go that way. And I hope that, and I feel like we won't go to that extreme, but we're clearly moving in that direction. Like, there's no question. There's no way I can say to my children, the oldest who's 17, oh, don't worry. When you're an adult and you have family, you'll have a shorter wait time at the NHS. Like,
0: no, you no, can't. Are you that's kidding? We're it.
1: going one direction. And so if the NHS is going to continue to contract, and I feel so bad for nurses and doctors, like it is abhorrent that they haven't gotten real wages, right, for so mm-hmm. long. It's ridiculous. And we're not investing in it in the right way. So I really, I hate that, but I can't do anything to change that. But I feel like then let's introduce new models to support people and let's avoid what's happening in the U.S. because that is just a nightmare.
0: Exactly. And then it's like, let's put the burden of paying that on corporates, yeah. companies that have the ability to pay. It makes totally. 100% sense, right? I think right? so. The only thing,
1: the only problem with that, which hopefully I anticipate, is that is a problem for like, if you're a teacher, if you're a social worker, if you totally. work at your local corner store, like, do you then not have access? So I'm hoping then, you know, we will definitely commit ourselves to, and I've, I've there's a commitment that I've made to investors, there will be a certain portion of our, you know, patient population that will be paying at a different rate. So, but you, yeah, I absolutely want the corporates to subsidize that. It all takes the burden off the public system anyway if those Mm -hmm. people are being paid for as well, right? Totally. Yeah,
0: totally. Uh, And that is the core of Social Security, right? Is like that the people who aren't able to pay will be subsidized by people who are able to pay because it's about mutual aid, right? Yeah. Yeah. And we didn't talk about it, but
1: if a different, as you would have seen, I think, We've processed a million and a half pounds worth of reimbursements, so paid for by Meta, Bain Capital, mm-hmm. Osmond Clark, um Rothesay was the other one, which used to be a Goldman Sachs division. Those companies are paying for treatment cycles for their employees over the last twelve months. It's a million and a half pounds that those employees didn't have to write the own check for or, you know, wasn't on the NHS. Those were cycles that weren't, yeah, taking up weight weight slots on the NHS. Yeah, so that it's is actually- the right thing yeah. to do.
0: Yeah, exactly. Sure. But I also think, like, again, I'm really glad that this kind of business is being run by a woman. Like, <laughs> I, I, to be very, like, blunt about it, I don't think if it was a man who was like, yes, I see where things are going. And so I'm going to make this, like, next gen bupa, right? Yeah. I don't yeah. think that they would have in their plan necessarily. Yeah, some might, but some might. Yeah. So I did.
1: Um... I did, un, uh, like, unapologetically when I looked for someone to run it. Are you still recording? This is good. You can this is good. It. We no, should record it. Oh, this is great. It's not off the record. This is great. But um, when I, so I spent five weeks, I kind of skipped this part because I realized I was going on too long. But when I went in thinking I was just going to be interim and I just wanted to hire somebody, I spent five weeks. I talked to more than 50, 50 candidates for the role. And I was unapologetic about, I only want to talk to women. And I realized that is discrimination at one level. But my belief was, even as a whatever capitalistic investor, that a woman would represent and be the face of the business in a stronger way than a man could be, especially if we we're going to talk about menopause and fertility. And also, for me, I also felt, which we, we think about when we invest as well, if I have an opportunity, you know, we haven't left it to, all to bots yet. And if I have the opportunity to decide and influence who's going to come in to run the business, I think it's okay for me to have a preference for a woman to run this business. And if I can't place a female CEO in this business, what the hell am I doing? Like, you know, so um, that was a concerted effort of mine. And I only talked to women. Fascinating, by the way, and somewhat exasperating exercise because I've also interviewed my fair share of men for other things, right? In other roles. And obviously, my you know, I love my husband, I have sons. I'm not, I'm not it's bashing okay. on men. No, no. <laughs> I'm not bashing on men. But when I interview men, I mean, I'm gonna over-exaggerate a bit, but you know, no joke, a guy will be like, you know, you'll talk about certain things like, Oh yeah, I listened to a podcast last week about that. No problem, got it, I can do it. Do you know what I mean? Like men they'll 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 jump at an opportunity. Like they're not Put off by something they haven't done before. Let's put it that way, right? So it's not like they're like, Oh no, I've never done that. I'm not sure. Every single woman I spoke to and I talked to some very, very credible, accomplished women. I'm sure you'd recognize some of their names because I went after B2B experience. I went after enterprise sales. I went after, you know, understood VCs was going to be able to fundraise all this stuff. Every single woman started the conversation probably by saying, you know, thanks for the call or whatever. I'm really interested in learning more. But after I would describe what we were after and what I was looking for, characteristics in person, they always started with what they hadn't done. So I'd get, you know, they'd be like, oh, this is really interesting. Just so you know, I've never raised from VCs. Just so you know, I've never done enterprise sales. Just so you know, I haven't done it at this stage, or I've never worked at a company this small, or I haven't taken it that far, whatever it what, like, just so you know, like, and they, I get it. They were wanting to be transparent, save your time, manage expectations. But no man starts by saying, just so you know, I've not done that before.
0: No, they don't. This is why so among me and my girlfriends, my like professional friends, um, there was a colleague I used to work with. Let's call him Dave. We have the Dave principle. Dave was <laughs> never afraid to ask for a raise or do yeah. really, really ballsy stuff to like climb the ladder. So whenever we're like, oh, I'm like thinking about my next role. What like what Dave should I do? do? Like what would Dave do? And so the <laughs> other day my friend was like, I really want to go work for this VC firm, but I don't know if they're hiring. I'm meeting with a partner. What should I do? I was like, go to the meeting. Yeah. Say that you want to go work there and that you're amazing. And after the meeting, send a bottle of wine and a card to his house, because that's what Dave would do, right? (laughs) That's so funny. And like, once you get in that mindset, like nothing becomes too far-fetched. Like, obviously Dave would do that. (laughs) Most men would
1: not start by saying what they can't do. Men don't start with their insecurities, right? Or what they haven't done before. They start with the, just so you know, I was like martial arts champion when I was 11. Like, you know what I mean? Like, even just so you know, I did this when I was like 15, like they'll lead with their, their, like their accomplishments and their feats even. And then they might, if you're asked directly, have you done this before? Well, no, but I've done, and they'll talk about something comparable, right? They, and every person I spoke to for this role opened with what they hadn't done before. That's so fascinating. And I ended up having conversations like, okay, I understand that, but I wouldn't be talking to you if I didn't think you'd be amazing at this job. Like I was having to be like, no, 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 no. You can do this if you want to do this. What I need to work out is, you know, if you're the right fit for other things. But yeah, so it was really fascinating.
0: Even really those fascinating. women who are like at the top of their game who are so impressive, you know, that's, yeah. yeah, Because we
1: women, I think see it as managing expectations. Um, because I think women are, more concerned about letting people down or being embarrassed or failing.
0: I yeah, think. that's the thing. So it's like when things don't go wrong, I already alerted them that yeah. like I don't have X, yeah, Y, and yeah. Z. So, yeah.
1: Like how many women start by saying, oh, re- I'm sorry. Like, sorry, but blah, 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 blah. Even when they're just talking in a meeting.
0: Completely. Yeah. yeah. Totally, so totally, we qualify everything. The other like word that I always take out with my girlfriends that we have is just. I just just need a little time. No, I need time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You no, know, you're right. There are so, okay. many, so many of those little things that we just like hold ourselves back with that we don't even, we aren't even aware of. So I think it starts really, and again, a
1: whole nother podcast. I think it starts really young. Mm. I think it starts at like two, three years old. I really do. So I don't know how we fix it or change it, but hopefully over generations we will.
0: Oh my gosh. Oh, well, we need to like have you back for a whole nother podcast. <laughs> 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 I mean, thank you. Oh I've thought about it a lot because I have three
1: boys and two girls. And even just random things like you've got, uh, we've got really friendly neighbors, we're living great, you know, and you can walk around with the kids and people stop and say hi and just, just try and see if you've noticed this with friends who have kids, everyone will say to the girls, isn't your hair pretty? That's such a pretty dress. That's such a pretty jumper. Oh, you look really cute or, oh, aren't those, you know, cute shoes, like something about their appearance. What they'll say to the boys are, did you play football this morning? Have you just been back from whatever sport? You know, what team are you following? How'd your team do? Who won the match? Like, so the girls, it's all about appearance. And these are people trying to be friendly. They are not trying to marginalize girls or boost up. They're just trying to be friendly neighbors. But they think the girls will be more chuffed by hearing something like that. And they think the boys will be able to read it to the boy if they're talking about an activity which is probably true, but they should talk about activities with the girls as well. <laughs> not just what their hair looks like or their clothes look like. And I've seen it. And it's not like you want to yell at somebody or tell them off because they're just being friendly to the kids, right? They're just – but it's it starts that early. Totally.
0: totally and so agree.
1: when the first person says that to a girl, they're like, oh, even if they're not, they're like, oh, you know, I got praise for something. And then they just think they look better. So, and they just start thinking about that. Nobody asks them about gymnastics or football, because they should be playing football too. Or you know, they don't ask them about the teams they're following. It's so it
0: starts really early. Yeah, I hundred percent agree. It's just all internalized, isn't it? It's a little bit scary though when yeah. I think about that. Yeah, completely, completely that's all we have time for. If you want to hear more about what's unfolding in the world of European tech and startups, you can find our coverage on sifted.eu. And if you were wondering who that strange man's voice was towards the end, that was our podcast producer, Tim, getting into the conversation as well. Uh, Let us know what you think of a sifted podcast on Twitter or an email at hello at sifted.eu and join us next week.